and that's one of the things that we're practicing here at the Reach Marion. So we're encouraging people to sort of spend one day a week in prayer and fasting in particular, and to spend this time in reflection on the work of Jesus in the lead up uh, to the time when we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection at Easter. And so we're actually finishing our uh, series through the book of Matthew now as well. So we're, we've been working our way for the past couple of years actually, with a couple of breaks in between. We've just had a small break in between uh, through a biblical relationship series. But now we're going to finish our series in Matthew as we lead up to Jesus' death and resurrection. So it will coincide with Easter, which is great. But one of the things you do during Lent or uh, as you're supposed to uh, during, as part of the church tradition, is to go a bit deeper than you normally would in thinking about what Jesus has done and who he is. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're actually going to look at a particular uh, passage of Scripture, which is a very interesting one, and it doesn't end on a good note, as you might have noticed. The, the disciples got up and fled. So that's not a very exciting, uh, encouraging thought. But one of the things that does strike me from this text, and I hope will strike you, is actually every time something bad happens, Jesus is still there. Every time something goes wrong, Jesus stands up. It's far more powerful, even with a restrained power, than it appears. And so what I want to look at uh, with you at this morning is the sovereignty of Jesus. And there's really three ways that that's expressed uh, in the text for us. Uh, firstly, there's the sovereign word of Jesus, in that when Jesus speaks, then things happen. The sovereign word of Jesus. And that's something that we ought to take seriously, which is God's word. We'll reflect on that. Secondly, is his sovereign restraint. You notice that Jesus could have called down 12 legions of angels to come and smite everyone, as God can at any time, but he didn't. Why is that? We'll find out. And thirdly, we see his sovereign grace in that Jesus does things in this text and is preparing to do things that we cannot do for ourselves. Even if we tried with all our might, we, like those present there, would just end up turning and fleeing ourselves. All right, so his sovereign word, his sovereign restraint, and his sovereign grace. Number one is sovereign word. Now, I, I love this text because everyone seems to think they're in control. So notice that uh, Judas, who's called the betrayer, what a name, the betrayer, right? He, he is introduced uh, to us again in this text. He's the one who knows where Jesus is and is going to you know, bring him uh, before the authorities with a kiss. So Judas thinks he's in control. The crowds think they're in control too. This is, this is the crowds which are sent by the religious and the sort of cultural authorities. It says they're sent by the chief priests, the, the people of the chief priests. They send their people out to get Jesus. And the elders of the community, they also send their people out to get Jesus. And they've got swords and clubs. And they think they're in control, you know, because they've got the weapons. And they can come and get rid of this Jesus whom has really been upsetting the status quo in terms of religion. And then even Jesus' disciples try and take back control. Notice with a sword, one of them whacks off the ear of one of the chief priest's people. So again, people are fighting for control. They're, they're trying to seize control. They're trying to seize Jesus. And I want you to notice something that's... Um, not very prominent in the text, but a very important point. 
And we see this uh, in verse 49. So this is speaking about Judas. It says, He came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. You can hear kind of the contempt or the irony in his words as Judas says that to Jesus. And he kissed him. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they seized him and laid hands on Jesus. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Notice that Jesus speaks and almost grants them permission to grab him. No one takes Jesus without him allowing it to happen. Now this, of course, reflects the sovereignty of Jesus being the Son of God. Nothing happens unless he permits it to happen. This is a scary thought, but it's a very important thought for us. And this is actually well reflected in John's Gospel. Because what happens is the people say, you know, who are you? Are you the Christ? And Jesus gets up and says, I am. I am. And everyone falls down on the ground when Jesus speaks the words, I am. Why do they fall down on the ground as recorded in John's Gospel? Because those simple words, I am, are the same words that God identifies himself in the Old Testament at the burning bush. When he speak, God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush and says, I am. That is the name of God, which we get the translation Yahweh. And so when Jesus speaks in the garden of uh, Gethsemane as he's been arrested and says, I am, and everyone falls on the ground, we're actually getting a revelation that this is the sovereign God we're witnessing here so nothing happens here even though everyone thinks they're in control nothing happens here without Jesus permission allowing it to happen Jesus himself is actually in control and I want you to notice something a bit more particular it's at his word that things happen it's at the word of Jesus that things happen Jesus has already reflected on this in John chapter 10 he says no one takes my life from me I lay it down of my own Accord. So whilst it's true that people are responsible for the death of Jesus, in that you know the Roman soldiers they took in there, they crucified him. The, the the religious authorities they were the ones that held held the court to accuse him and to condemn him to death. You know they put him before Pilate and Pilate allowed them to crucify him. You know, whilst there were, all these people were responsible, Jesus alone gave the permission. It's a striking thought. To think that actually, even though Jesus is about to face death, nothing is happening here that is outside of his sovereignty. And we see this a little bit further on. So if you have a look uh, in your text, uh, it says in verse 54, Jesus says, But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? As in, not only is Jesus allowing himself to be taken and captured by these people to be taken to the cross, but he's fulfilling the scripture at the very moment. And he says it again in verse 56. But this, all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Who's in control in this text? Jesus is. So let me just highlight this uh, for you in a few bullet points. Firstly, this tells us that Jesus always keeps his promises even unto death. And this reflects the whole Bible, right? Because Jesus is fulfilling Scripture, but by fulfilling Scripture, he's also dying. This tells us that there's a God in the text here who will always do what he says he will, even at the cost of his own life. 
This is the kind of sovereign God we see in the text. Secondly, man cannot move one inch without the permission of Jesus. The Bible says he holds the universe together by the word of his power. So many of us reflect that uh, God created the world. And uh, you know, if, if you don't believe that, uh, this is a good exposure to the God who did. That he spoke and the world came into existence. And yet many of us don't realize that actually the Bible tells us that it's actually still stuck together by his authority and sovereign will. No two atoms are bound in any you know, atomic structure without Jesus permitting it and actually empowering it to be so. He is that involved. So really Christianity rejects uh, what you call the, the deist view of, of the world, which, which is one that's probably fairly prominent in Australia in that you know, God's kind of involved. Most Australians, the census tells us, have some sort of belief in God. But most Australians don't believe he has a personal, real uh, relationship with us here and now. He's not really involved in the world. And we have all sorts of reasons for that. Maybe the crisis in the Ukraine, for example. Or the crisis in our own lives. Or the, the upheaval of COVID or the political stuff over the past two years. We look at those as reasons why God is not in control. And yet here, we see that nothing can happen. Not, man cannot move an inch without Jesus allowing it to be so. Another thing we see here is that people overestimate their power over Jesus. They brought swords and clubs, didn't they? To come to get the Son of God who could call down 12 legions of angels and smite the lot of them. He could have done it. He said he could have done it. And yet he didn't. People overestimate their power over God all the time. I love, um, I love it when we make predictions and, and you know, we have statistics and we say, well, this will happen. This trend line, and we've seen a lot of this in the past couple of years, haven't we? We said this trend line means that this will happen and then in a year's time, and in a year's time that didn't happen. I don't know how many times that's happened. <laughs> and it's fascinating because we love making predictions, don't we? In fact, we're good at making predictions and we get really angry at the weather bureau when the, the weather doesn't turn out exactly as I say. It's geez, I don't think it's possible to tell the future, even though we think that the Weather Bureau should be able to tell the future somehow. That alone is up to God. And yet this tells us that humanity has this sense, we want to know the future, and yet God alone is the one who has the future in his hands. And we totally overestimate our power over him. I want you to notice as well that people underestimate Jesus' authority. Notice that one of the disciples picked up a sword to defend Jesus as if he needed defending. As if Jesus needed help in this situation. You notice that Peter was trying to restrain Jesus uh, in chapter 16 of Matthew from going to the cross. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. You don't even know what's going on. I don't realize how powerful Jesus really is. Now, everything here has been foretold in the scriptures and will take place. Last bullet point, five. Last bullet point. When all others fail, Jesus remains. Verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. Everyone else goes. Jesus stays. I was chatting with someone just before the service, um, reflecting on a moment in uh, one of the Gospels when uh, Jesus is teaching, I think it's John chapter 6, and Jesus is teaching and um, everyone sort of starts to leave because Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple. And Jesus said, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, to whom else shall we go? As in, we've got no other options here. To whom else shall we go? And yet here they leave. Now this is important just to really zoom in on our own lives for a minute. Because everything else will fail you but Jesus. You put your faith in something else, it will fail you. Someone else, they will fail you. No one can handle the weight of absolute trust. Because we're sinners, right? And so, if you put your absolute trust in a person, they are going to let you down badly. If you put your absolute trust in a human institution, it will let you down badly. And we seem to do that, don't we? We, we think that if we just get a political solution, we just get an economic solution. I mean, and we've just had an election campaign, haven't we? We just, just get a solution to the ramping crisis or, or whatever it is. Then everything will be set right, as, assuming that if we just put out all the fires of the current crisis, then finally, with politics perhaps, we will get the great solution that we've been looking for in humanity. And yet, of course, we know if you look just a cursory glance over history, it does not work. So whether you put your faith in people, institutions, or perhaps it is your own employment or your own status or your own success, your own family, your own ambitions, they will let you down. But what does the text say? Jesus stayed. And so there's one person that won't let you down. It's Jesus. Because why did he stay? He stayed to die for you and for me. Uh, in the mid-19th century, uh, there was a Christian woman. Her name was Louisa M.R. Stead. Louisa M.R. Stead. And um, she was in her, in her mid-20s, and she went out with uh, her husband that lived in sort of New York State, and went out with her husband uh, and their four-year-old daughter to, to a park for a picnic near a body of water. And uh, during their picnic, uh, the husband heard... Um, someone crying for help out in the water. And so the husband went out to um, save this person and drowned. And, and the person who uh, this husband was trying to save also drowned. So they both drowned in the water, leaving uh, Louisa and her four-year-old daughter destitute. Now, this was when there wasn't a welfare system going around. They had no money, but they were believers in Jesus. And one evening, uh, they were sitting by the dinner table giving thanks to God, though they had no food on the table in front of them. And they said, thank you, Jesus, for your provision for us, as we're told to do at all times, to act with thanksgiving. And then as they were praying, there was a knock on the door, and there was a hot meal uh, and a parcel with, with money in it. That night, uh, Louisa Stead wrote a poem. And the poem goes like this. "'Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus.' just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh for grace to trust him more. 
many of you will know that because it was uh, lyrics, uh, more lyrics were added to it and a melody and it turned into quite a famous hymn at the end of the 19th century. But she wrote it out of a place of deep hurt and great trust. Trust in the sovereign God, though you can have no food on the table, you can thank Him for what He gives you and then see Him provide. Trust in the sovereign God, though the ones closest to you die, even when there is death, the hope goes on. Why could she believe that? Why could she write something to talk about the sweetness of trusting in Jesus and just, and this is the bit I want you to get, taking him at his word. Because she had a hope, she had a trust in the sovereignty of God that goes beyond death. Because Jesus took it to death and beyond. And even in her own moment of, the most difficult and darkest moment of her life, when there was nothing left, and really for people it doesn't come straight after their moment of loss or trauma it's in the months and the years to come and for her it was when they had no food on the table and she was able to write this poem of great trust so what does this mean for us the sovereign word of jesus what does this mean for us well i think it means that we have every reason to obey god's word we have every reason to do it the text here gives us every reason to because of the one who speaks it, because of the one who fulfills it. Jesus himself ties his identity to his word. We see at the beginning of God's gospel, he is the word. And so we have every reason to trust God's word, even in the most difficult of circumstances, even when we don't feel like it. Now, this is a little bit like, um, and I actually spoke on this a couple of weeks ago, the relationship between parents and children. What's the uh, instruction to children? Obey your parents. It's pretty simple, isn't it? But it's actually through... This kind of works two ways, doesn't it? You need to trust him to obey him, but as you obey him, you learn to trust him. And so you really need to keep doing both. And the text here gives us every reason to do it. We have a powerful and a faithful God who loves us who cares about us even to take himself to death. When everyone else goes, he's there. One who will never leave us nor forsake us. And that is the place where it gives us a sense of being obedient to God's word. We should be people who come under his sovereignty. Okay, so that's number one, his sovereign word. Number two, his sovereign restraint. Now, if, if you've heard me speak before, you know I'm a bit of a sort of fantasy sci-fi nerd and uh, I like the books not just the movies by the way so in the in the book the Lord of the Rings the return of the king it's the th- uh, third book in the uh, Lord of the Rings series uh, you get to the end of the narrative and if you haven't seen it too bad I'm going to give you the spoilers anyway um, so a- at the end the good guys win and and there's the great king Aragorn who's uh, finally ascended to the throne Uh, And he's actually going back through the rest of his kingdom, establishing justice and order. And he runs across um, one of the bad guys who actually betrayed him, called Saruman. And he's sort of offside a worm tongue. And he runs into them, uh, and you you would expect that he's just going to smite them. uh, Because Saruman was a very bad guy, got into league with Sauron, and sort of all 
uh, hell broke loose, basically. And he runs into these two, and what does he do? He offers them mercy if they would submit to him as king. Even, you know, even in light of all the bad stuff they've done, Aragorn is presented by the author Tolkien as someone so just that he would even at the final moment give another opportunity for this uh, person, Saruman, this, this evil wizard and his offside a worm tongue to receive mercy and be transformed. Even then, he restrains his great power because he could have smote them and actually should have perhaps smote them at the time. I was researching this and there's this whole Reddit feed on what would have happened if you know, Saruman and Wormtongue actually took up Aragorn's offer. And of course, we'll never know. But of course, they didn't actually, which is a sad side of things. But the, the, great, the, the thing that the text uh, in The Lord of the Rings shows us is the great restraint of the king. Even though he could have taken them out, he offers them mercy. He extends the hand of grace to them and says, there is still at this dark hour for you another moment to turn back. And that's really what we see in our text uh, in Matthew 26. We see the restraint of Jesus amongst everyone who's betraying now, the betrayers are pretty clear in the text. I mean, and there's the, kind of the obvious one, Judas, right? He's called the betrayer. Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas, the one who shared the, final, the last supper with Jesus. Judas, the one who was there for three years of Jesus' ministry. Although Jesus knew that Judas you know, would betray him, Jesus washed his feet. So Jesus knew what was going to happen. And he still had this guy, Judas, around him. And then at the final moment, he betrays him with a kiss. So there's Judas, the betrayer. Uh, the, the chief priests and the elders of um, Israel and, and in Jerusalem, the sort of religious body that was, and a cultural body that was uh, in power, they also betray Jesus, don't they? I mean, Jesus is their Christ. He's the Messiah of the Jews. And they're, they're there to kill him. So he's betrayed by his closest, one of his closest followers. He's betrayed by his own people. And the guilt actually falls one more step. He's betrayed by humanity. Isn't he? Because humanity didn't realize the day of his appearing. He was there. And everyone rejected him. Even his closest disciples fled from him. And so everyone bears some level of guilt, some more than others, of course, but everyone bears a level of guilt. You know, humanity, God's own creation, the one he breathed life into, the ones whom uh, Psalm 139 t tells us, you know, are beautifully and wonderfully made. God loves us deeply. He made us in his own image. We have dignity and worth because we are made in the image of our creator and yet humanity rejected the Son of God. And so the Bible tells us that there is a justice due to that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
The wrath of God is upon humanity because we have rejected the Savior. John 3.16 tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. But 17 and 18 tell us the world is condemned because it did not believe in God's only Son. It's interesting that in the Bible you get the good news and the bad news side by side because God is a God of truth and a God of love. And we need to hear both. Because if you just get love, you'll go off track. And if you just get truth, well, you won't have love, right? And it's not good. We need both. And the Bible gives us both. And so Jesus acknowledges that there is an injustice taking place by saying, I could call 12 legions of angels to come right now. Take everyone out. Scorched earth. Fire from heaven. The whole lot. He could do it. In fact, that would be justice because of the betrayal of Judas, the betrayal of his own people and the religious body that was supposed to worship him and the betrayal of humanity. He could have and perhaps even should have brought them down, but he didn't. But he didn't. Notice, I want you to notice something. There's a very odd verse here. Uh, it's verse 52. And you've probably heard it before. It's, it's a pretty common um, phrase in the world. In fact, a lot of the common phrases come out of the Bible, oddly enough. But verse 52, um, when Jesus is uh, telling off one of the disciples for cutting off the ear of Malchus, the um, high priest's servant, uh, verse 52 says, Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or you might have heard it said, live by the sword, die by the sword. And if you're a person of violence, violence will be done to you. Well, and really, the like, Proverbs kind of tells us that in, in this sort of general wisdom of God. But we know that to be true. And Jesus taught it here. He didn't want his uh, disciples to take up violent arms because there was a different way that Jesus was going to handle this situation. So verse 52 is just a truism for almost everyone except for Jesus. Because Jesus didn't live by the sword. In fact, even here, he's restraining his sovereignty by not smiting everyone on the spot. So Jesus didn't live by violence here, and yet he is going to die by violence. So there's an exception to this general rule, and Jesus is himself is the one who would bear it. Now, this is very interesting because often Jesus is presented to us as a symbol of non-violence. As in, you know, that Jesus did restrain uh, his wrath upon humanity at that point. He didn't call down his 12 legions of angels, even though there was a violent mob out there to get him. So is this just a symbol of non-violence? No. Because Jesus still went to the cross, didn't he? He still received violence upon himself. Why? Why would he go to a cross rather than giving other people justice? What was going on here other than that Jesus himself, the Bible tells us, is taking the justice due to those who rejected him, the religious leaders, 
the religious establishment, the cultural leaders, even all of humanity. Jesus is taking the justice due to all of humanity upon himself. That's why he didn't leave when everyone else fled. Uh, this is very interesting, this idea of the doctrine of non-violence, because um, Jesus does, does teach a lot about not taking up the sword, about, you know, if, if your um, enemy takes something from you, you know, like give it over to them, essentially. And someone who wasn't a Christian who took up this doctrine of non-violence was someone called Mahatma Gandhi uh, in the 20th century. Remember really in the, in the first half of the 20th century, He's an Indian guy, uh, heavily influenced by different philosophical teachings across the world. And one of the things that he uh, taught was that the world needed political upheaval through the practice of nonviolent protests. And so that's what he did. And, and so there's, there's, sort of, there's pictures of people sort of beating him and his followers with sticks and they're just standing there taking it. Now, th- this, was a, uh, this was a very powerful movement in, uh, sort of the, uh, under the Commonwealth of um, uh, Great Britain, and which... India was a part, and they were trying to break free of that yoke. It was a very powerful movement at the time, but then something happened. Uh, Nazi Germany invaded Belgium, and there was this prevailing thought of appeasement in that World War I was so bad, you know, it, was the world, it was the war to end all wars, that we don't want to go down that path again. You know, we, we must uh, continue the path of nonviolence if we're not violent, that will then stop others being violent. And yet it didn't work. And people, and, and actually Mahatma Gandhi's teachings began to fall apart because people, uh, as World War II continued and, and the Allied forces took up arms against uh, Nazi Germany and their allies, uh, they realised if we didn't stop, this would have been much, much worse. If, if we didn't take action, this would have been much, much worse. And then when uh, they were speaking to him about you know, 5 million Jews plus that were killed through genocide, uh, he had very little to answer them other than platitudes from his own teaching. Now the reason I bring this up is because we're in a world where there is violence. We're in a world where people are wronged and there is injustice that takes place all the time. And just saying... I won't act in violence upon the situation or I don't want justice doesn't work for those who've been harmed or abused. Imagine to a victim of abuse saying, well, you know, just, just let them go free because that'll be better for them. That's not justice. And what about the people of the Ukraine who are being invaded and, and their land is getting taken over and bombed and killed and whatever else? Do we say, oh, it's fine. Just let them have it. That doesn't work when your family members are killed and your house is destroyed. So how on earth can we follow Jesus' example here of restraining his violence if we're in an unjust world? How can we do that? How can you restrain yourself from getting revenge against someone who's really hurt you? How can you restrain yourself from being bitter against the person that's wronged you in the past? How can you forgive someone who's really hurt you in the past? How can you do it? What do you have at your disposal? 
you have the sovereign restraint of Jesus. Because Jesus restrained his wrath, knowing that he would take the wrath of God upon himself. So we have a saviour who would take it upon himself. And we have a saviour who is returning to judge the living and the dead. And the only way that we can love our enemies, as Jesus taught us to, is by looking through the lens that Jesus gives us here. A restrained power because of love. Someone who loves sinners even unto death. Because some of these people who've hurt us, Jesus might even save them. And the only way that you might have love in your heart to accept that is if you accept that you, yourself, could be a sinner saved by the grace of Jesus. Because we're all in the basket of being under the wrath of God. But by the grace of Jesus who stayed when everyone else fled. By the grace of Jesus who went to the cross in our place. Which brings us to our third point. So we've covered, number one, his sovereign word. We've covered, secondly, his sovereign restraint. And thirdly, we look at now his sovereign grace. I want to um, unpack just a couple of verses here now for you. Uh, verse 54, Jesus says, But how then should the Scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so, as in that Jesus would come and die, that, that his betrayers would come, that his own people would betray him? Uh, and we see... Uh, well, we see the, the kind of scripture that Jesus is fulfilling. And there's a few really specific messianic texts in the Old Testament that Jesus is speaking about here. Uh, one of them is from Psalm 22. And, and if you read all of Psalm 22 and you look at, and we're going to have a look at it actually over the next few weeks, over this sort of passion narrative and the lead up to Jesus' death and, and resurrection, it is incredible the connections that you see there. But I just want to pick out a couple of verses for you. This is Psalm 22, verse 19. It says, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my, sword from the, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. So the psalmist is, is speaking of this incredible pressure and betrayal and attack that it, the, the psalmist would be receiving in that text, but it, but it actually points forward to Jesus. You know, being, being attacked by people with swords. It's interesting, um, though, because the psalmist is actually asking to get out of the situation, whereas Jesus doesn't. Jesus restrains himself and stays where he is. He permits himself to be taken. One of the really interesting things about Psalm 22 is that the first verse are the words that Jesus cries out on the cross in dereliction. This is what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that Jesus cries out on the cross when he is receiving and coming to the, the pinnacle of taking God's justice against humanity upon himself. But Jesus says the words in verse 1 so that the words in verse 31 at the end of the psalm can be true. It says that he has done it. Jesus' last words that he says on the cross uh, uh, it is finished, or to telestai in the Greek. It is done. There is no more to be paid. It is complete. So what did Jesus fulfill on the cross? What did Jesus fulfill in the garden here when he was being betrayed? Psalm 22. He who was let down by everyone stood firm to the end, even unto death, so that he could say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taking the justice of God upon himself and at the same time saying, it is finished. 
The work is complete. I have paid the penalty for sin in my body on the tree so that those who believe in me can be set free. So that's uh, one, uh, one verse I wanted to point out from the text. The second, uh, the second is here in verse 56. It says, But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. So it's not just uh, the scriptures themselves, but the scriptures of the prophets. Now one of the most profound texts, uh, again, really specifically a messianic text talking about what Jesus does here is in Isaiah 53. And we see this in verses 7 and 8 of Isaiah 53. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living but stricken for the transgression of my people? This is speaking of this moment that Jesus is in and what he's about to head into, you know, the trials that he's about to face. Jesus is saying, if I don't go through with this now, these scriptures will not be fulfilled. And we know one of the most powerful uh, verses in Isaiah 53 is that by his stripes we will be healed. As in by what Jesus has done, our relationship with God will be healed. That is what Jesus is looking forward to for us. Now these two verses... Uh, these two uh, scriptures and the, and the prophets that Jesus refers to here, which I'm pretty sure Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, in perhaps a combination with some others, tell us some things. They tell us some things about the grace of Jesus or his sovereign grace, as we've put it this morning. The first thing it tells us is that Jesus does it and that we don't. We can't save ourselves. Moreover, if we were to take God's justice upon ourselves, we'll be eternally separated from Him. So the Bible talks about doctrine of hell. That's eternal separation from God. If we were to stand in Jesus' place, we would be in hell forever. So this text tells us that Jesus was willing to take that upon Himself, not to flee, to stand firm. That is a mark of God's grace because he does it, we don't. It's pretty simple from that point of view. Secondly, Jesus does it because we can't. No one's good enough to stand up to the standards that Jesus has. You know the word transgression in the Bible uh, and, and the word for sin uh, predominantly means actually missing the mark. Missing the mark, that is, we don't do what the Bible says we ought to do. We're not good enough in and of ourselves, though we try with all of our might. We just can't pull it off. And even when we try and live a good life and when other people wrong us, we don't restrain our power, but we deal it out in vengeance. And even if we don't do it physically, we sure think about it. So we don't live as we ought to do. We don't act as we ought to do, but Jesus does. He restrained himself, showing mercy. And yet, he received the wrath of God upon himself, showing justice. Where else in the world, let me ask you, do you see mercy and justice together in the same action? You don't. 
This is the most powerful and profound moment of human history to this point. The cross. When the mercy of God and the justice of God come together. There is a way that God can be just and loving at the same time. It's on the cross. Third thing I want you to notice is that Jesus does it alone without help. He does it alone without hope. Notice all the disciples left him and fled. No one's there but Jesus and his enemies. Everyone else left. And this is really important. This one I want you to really get. You cannot help yourself into the kingdom of heaven. God must save you. You can't get there through doing good works. You can't get there just through being baptized or having first communion or going to church or being part of the right family or doing, living a good life and just hoping that through some vague belief in God that you'll get into heaven. The only way that you can be saved is through faith in Jesus Christ and by Him coming upon you that you might be born again, as the Scriptures say. And He does it totally without our help. He doesn't need you, but he loves you. He doesn't need you, but he chose you. He doesn't need you, but he died for you. He doesn't need you, but he rose from the dead for you. So what should this do for us? Well, as we consider the sovereign grace of Jesus and really his sovereignty as a whole, I think there's one overarching uh, thing that it should produce in our hearts, and I believe that is humility. There's a reversal of symbols here, which I think is a great example of humility. Notice that um, Judas kissed Jesus, and a kiss, particularly in ancient Near Eastern culture, was a great sign of affection and honour. And yet that symbol of a kiss of, of affection and honour was turned into a symbol of death. And yet in Jesus, we see a symbol of death, meaning the cross, turned into a symbol of grace and life. You know, for those of you who wear crosses, we've got a cross uh, sort of on the, on the back of our building. Why do we have that? It's a symbol of God's grace and life because he was on the cross, not us. And so he reverses what the cross, which was a symbol of the most gruesome and horrific death that they could come up with in the first century. Jesus reverses that for us into a symbol of life and that should produce humility. Because we didn't do it, he did. We couldn't do it, but he did. We would have fled, but he stayed. We would have given up and betrayed him, but he restrained his power in order to show us his mercy. What a wonderful God and King we have this morning. Why don't we pray and honour him? Lord Jesus, we honour you now. You are worthy of our praise. You are good and loving and kind, God. There is no one like you. And so we worship and praise you this morning. We lift up our hearts to you and we ask that you would change us by the truth of your word. Come upon us this morning in love and in refreshment that we might know you, that we might live for you and be changed by you. And we pray this now. In Jesus' name, amen.